All right. Welcome to Bonehead. It is my pleasure to have the auteur. I'm terrible with pronouncing things. Alex Proyas, the great director on our show today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Now, Thank you. Lovely to, lovely to, to be with you. We were just talking about you being uh, shooting the crow in Wilmington. And but I, I wanted we pride ourselves in trying to find a question that no one has asked you. And we pride ourselves on always trying to start off with that question. Okay. And as well, I was, I challenge you to do that. <laughs> I've got it. Okay. I've got it. And you will be proud of me. I All hope. Right. So, once again, doing a deep dive, trying to watch other interviews, trying to stay away from the cliche questions. The one question I have is because we're social media friends and that I follow you. How how has giving sugar up changed your life? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is a good question. But I, I actually have been asked that. Before. Damn it! Um, yeah, <laughs> Alex, I couldn't find that anywhere. I, I made a big deal out of, as you clearly know, I made a big deal out of giving up sugar, which is a, one of my great loves in my life recently. Look at look at and, us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot and a lot of other bad stuff that goes with uh passion for sugar you know um, yeah uh, uh but um it's been look it's honestly been fantastic it's uh, I, I highly recommend it it's the one part of the diet that has not been very good i have to say over the years you know when you get when you're shooting films you get very tired and long long hours and stressed and so you eat a lot of high energy food and, you know, yeah. a lot of that can, like I send my guy out to get, you know, or girl, my assistant to go out and get me a burger or something if we were shooting late at night or, you know, pizzas, all that bad stuff that we love so much, you know. Um, but it was, the, it was the sodas, you know, the soft drinks that went with that, that yeah. um, gave me that instant energy boost that, that um, I really needed. Um, and it's just, you know, I'm, I have to say I was pretty heavily addicted, as a lot of us are, to, to sugar in particular, you know. Yeah. And so now I've basically gone completely cold turkey on it for the last, it's probably been almost four or five, six months maybe. I've lost track. Um, but I don't, I don't crave it anymore. So I don't have sodas. I don't have, um, uh, you know, I drink a lot of coffee through the day and I, I do don't too. have any sugar in that at all. And Because it all adds up, you know, just a, a couple of sodas, or even those fruit juices, you know, mm -hmm. pre-prepared fruit juices, they're, they're almost as high in sugar as, as, as sodas are. Yeah. And, you know, three or four cups of coffee with a couple of teaspoons in, you know, and you end up with consuming like about that much sugar. You know, right, all, yeah. And every day, and that's really, really bad for you. So I've just gotten rid of it all. I have so much more energy anyway um, without that stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, I can't say enough good things things about it it's a great really great if you can do it it's a great thing to to do well two things one i admire you for being able to do it i gave up regular soda a long time ago but it hasn't helped me because i actually love chocolate and the uh second part is damn it i was hoping i was i was searching so hard to do something that no one had asked <laughs> so sorry yeah. about that um, no no that's absolutely fine yeah. but before james you have another one i want to try another way all right okay go shoot yeah and i'm going to phrase it differently because my wife said the way i did phrase it was too cruel if you had the world's most delicious cookie on sugar and you had to take it away from either will smith or tom rothman <laughs> who would you take it away from um i wouldn't take anything away from will smith because okay. he's much bigger and stronger than i am 
he actually lifted me up during an interview. We were doing a media, like a junket type <laughs> thing with a, a room full of journalists. He actually lifted me up and I've never actually been lifted up. I haven't either, um, not in a long by, time. By someone since I was a kid, you know, it was a very weird sensation actually. Um, but um, yeah, he was proving how strong he was. And I think he certainly succeeded because I'm not, uh, I'm a little lighter now because of my no sugar diet, but I, but not much lighter. And I was pretty much a lot heavier in those days. Um, uh, so yeah, I would definitely not take anything for, away from Will, you know. Um, Tom Rothman, I'd try and take as much as I possibly can away from, including cookies and all kinds of things, you know, but uh, not that I have that ability. But if I had a magical power, I would right do that and i know i know that's a well-worn story but i wanted to do it in a different way as far as asking that (laughs) so at least i got that at least i got that so james are you ready i know you're ready for your question yeah well you directed music videos but i noticed that you were also credited as the writer for the fleetwood mac video for everywhere and I actually had yeah. a question. What is writing a music video? What does that consist of? And how do I you don't know. I, I've got no idea. I was the director of that video, um, but I don't know who is who would be foolish enough to music. I mean, you, I guess you do write them, but you, as a director, you kind of come up with a concept. But I mean, to write a, a video is sort of kind of a bit far fetched, you know. That, that actually was based on a um, very famous uh, poem, in fact, that video. Um, so I can't even take whatever puny writing credit I would normally take for a, for a music video. It's, it's a famous poem by someone who I should know and should remember, but I don't. Um, and, uh, you know, so we just found that and went, this is a great, you know, story to tell in visually, you know. Uh, without any dialogue and it seemed to be appropriate to the to the song so that's how we how we brought those two things together that's why it's about you know the the visuals i don't know if you've seen the video but it's a, the visuals mm-hmm. are very you know they're like a, a you know period piece period movie you know? right so you and i have also have something else in common we're both only children and the there's a few years difference between us because you got i got a vhs on the you know camcorder and you got a super eight right so i'm curious when i was trying to you do a great video on your channel and what's your channel called on your youtube Uh, channel mystery clock cinema is the youtube channel right i'm sorry i was trying to get you to plug it (laughs) (laughs) because you have you have your short films on there you have combinations of your commercials uh your music video work and i'm and you do, you've done a couple of segments on movies that you think other folks should watch, at least buy them and buy them on Blu-ray yeah. and not just stream them. And I'm yeah. curious, and I may have missed it when I was researching, but I'm trying to find those, those movies that just, that, that clicked in your head when you were a child uh, of, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that's easy to answer. And, and I have answered that many times. You had, that was a multi-pronged question you were asking. I wasn't quite sure what to jump into. Oh, but, that's okay. I want but, you to go into the, all of the, it. I, there are a lot of interesting yeah. things that that raises. Um, but yeah, the, um, the, the, the film that made me want to make movies is uh, 2001. Um, and I saw it when I was very, very young. It, it wasn't, we saw, I saw it theatrically. My dad yeah. used to take me to the move to, you know, and my mum as well, but my dad particularly was a, a real movie buff and he would go and see movies that sometimes my mum wasn't that interested in. And 
and this was the re-release. It wasn't the because I'm not that I'm old, but I'm not that old. No, you're not um, old. <laughs> so so um, <laughs> um, it was the the film re, the film came out once I think, and then it didn't do well, and then the drug culture Caught discovered on. it mm-hmm. overseas, and then in Australia it got re-released. I think in the early '70s, which is when I saw it. But I was still very I was still very young. I was I probably was like about six years old or seven years old or something when I when I saw the the film, um, and it was. I I definitely seen films before that, but this is a film that really, as a kid, it just completely blew me, blew my mind. I had no idea what was going on. I remember asking my dad constantly. It was just me and him that went to see it. And we saw it on a huge, it was actually a Cinerama um, screen that was built for Cinerama in in Sydney that's, you know, now long gone. But um, so it was a huge experience with a six track sound and it was an amazing, and that film, you know, and I remember asking my dad, you know, like constantly, and he was like, shh, just watch it, you know, because he had no idea what was going on either, of course. Um, he just heard about this thing, you know, this this cult experience, you know, and, he, you know, he'd see all the movies, basically. Um, uh, and uh, it just, you know, really kind of blew, yeah, that's all I can describe it as, blew my mind, you know, as right. I did with many other people. And, uh, you know... It wasn't like I just I walked out as a you know convert to film, but but that came a few years later when I was actually old enough to bug my parents to get me a Super 8 camera. It was like I think I was about ten when they got me a camera, um, and that's when I was going. Well, I want to be a filmmaker, you know. But mm-hmm. looking back, that was the origin of my my madness um, in this ridiculous industry, you know. Mm-hmm. So what are some of you, Joe Dante, the director, once said that you can watch a movie and most directors or a lot of, especially the good ones, especially people like you who have a vision or voice is what I prefer. You know, you can tell that the voice is coming through, that they're representations of the director. Do you feel that way about you and your films, that the oh, yeah, representation totally. of who you are? Yeah, totally. Um, totally. It's it's. Hollywood gets in the way of that, unfortunately. They, right. they don't. They, you know, there's the, you know, the odd, the odd thing for me is that they hire you uh, because of your voice, and then they, yes. they, you know, because you of what the special thing is. I assume, otherwise, why they, why they don't hire someone else? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then they choose to try and silence that, or, 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 or just water it down at every possible. Point, um, uh, which is just to me kind of completely. I still don't understand. If you can explain it to me, I appreciate it. Um, no, I um, <laughs> I know but, exactly um, what you're saying. Yeah, so so it's uh, it, it is a real strange thing. But to me, it's like the great films and the great filmmakers that I admire, and I think many of us admire, are ones that you can recognize that 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 you know that eye or that that voice, uh, as you say. Um, and I was equated to like a you know someone playing a musical instrument, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like a great a great musician or a great singer. You know, you can identify that quality that they have, that that very individualistic identity that they have very clearly. If you know if you know your stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, and they're the sort of films I've I've always loved, and clearly from two thousand one and and uh, and Kubrick and and you know they're the films I've always wanted to make, but it's. It's hard and it's increasingly difficult to make films, the auteur films, for want of a better word, um, in the in the commercial sphere. It's re- it's really proving very difficult 
more and more difficult, particularly in the science fiction and fantasy world, which is expensive, you know, generally to this time has been expensive, you know. Um, and I always, I always imagined, like when I started doing this, I always imagined, well, if I get really good at this stuff and I actually make, make them a, a few dollars, make the, the money men mm-hmm. a few dollars, that one day they'll leave me alone and I'll just be able to do my thing. But sadly, that day, that day never, never ever comes, you know. And the, even for the great filmmakers these days, even for the, 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 not the, the um, you know, the very successful filmmakers, like even no for them one. it doesn't come. Mm-hmm. Well, well, literally, you know, he he may be a rare exception, but literally, and we'll see what happens now that he's had a film that hasn't done well for whatever circumstances, because Hollywood doesn't care about the circumstances. All they see is the bottom line, you know. And he's um, had a tiff over but, Warner Brothers and streaming, yeah. And that too, yeah. But yeah. but the thing is, um, regardless of naming specifics, um, you know, the the whole one for them, one for for the the filmmaker attitude. Um, even that clearly doesn't work, you know, that becomes something that, you know, because if, if the one for them doesn't quite succeed um, in the way they wanted to, for whatever extenuating circumstances, you know, I'm talking from my own personal experience, right. it makes it very, very difficult to um, then do one for you, you know. Um, and yet, you know, I was going on the last one, I was going, well, this is definitely one for them. Uh, but, but the them were... Uh, were, were, well, it wasn't even them. It was other thems who became, um, who created a, a, this sort of mad, you know, politically incorrect kind of, um, you know, mythology around this film, and it just doomed doomed the movie. Commercial. You're talking about gods know? of Egypt. I'm sorry. Uh, just I'm so talking our, about gods of Egypt. Egypt yeah. Just so for our audience. Um, yeah, which is um, uh, which was kind of you know murdered, fi- you know, financially speaking at the box office because people in your lovely land decided that it was, uh, it was, um, you know, not cast correctly. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's a, a very ironic for a guy, an Egyptian guy like me, when I'm being told that I haven't cast my movie in, in Egypt correctly. Because you're um, Egyptian think, and Greek, right? Well, you know, the interesting thing about, you know, getting onto this topic is that um, the current, uh, um, you know the, the the people who are currently in command of Egypt are the Arabs, as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, now the Arabs kind of, you know, Egypt has historically been a the centre of civilization for mm-hmm. for millennia, and it's been conquered by many many people. Right? Um, we don't really clearly know who the ancient Egyptians were, other than um, you know theory. Right? Um, the Greek Egyptians, uh, my my people, who are no longer there, they we, you know we got booted out in the in the sixties when my parents were, were came to Australia. Right. Um, uh, we we go back to Ptolemy and Alexander and Cleopatra. Um, Cleopatra was a Greek Egyptian. Um, okay. um, so we actually, you know, really my my, you know, and I, I don't. I mean, this this stuff is ridiculous to even talk about. I you know this is. I've been forced to talk about this stuff because of this specific instance with right. gods of Egypt. And I didn't, and, and thank you for sharing. Well, actually, it didn't intend to go this way, but it's fascinating. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk yeah, about yeah. this because it's it's still a source of great frustration. And, and I can imagine. And, uh, um, uh, you know, so many people watch the movie now and go, well, it's a really good movie. You know, it's like, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's like, and they just, every, every opinion was siding with this concept that it was whitewashing and, and, uh, 
and um, and therefore it wasn't a good movie, you know. Um, uh, so so yeah, so basically uh, the the you know my my heritage goes way back. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, my dad always used to say that I was called Alex because I was direct descendant from Alexander the Great, which is complete and utter fabrication, I'm sure. He was convinced that was the case. Um, because you're, but, you um, probably were to him, right? To, to him, yeah. Well, see, Greek, Greek Egyptians and Greeks generally, and a lot of European cultures, they go, um, the, the male uh, uh, child firstborn is, is one of two names. It's either the father or the grandfather, and mm -hmm. it just alternates forever you know it goes mm -hmm. right right back you know so um anyway it's uh that's neither here nor there but but yeah the whole that whole incident with the film was just i went wow this is insanity utter insanity this uh you know the, the it seemed like it was the it was the perfect storm because it was like trump was uh being nominated when the film yep. was coming out and looked like he was going to be very get in and and there was incredible um social media kind mm -hmm. of antagonism and division which i have to say it's a very sad but your country has uh continues to be suffering from incredible division and it just seems to be getting worse and, oh my goodness and yeah. um i, I was like here. uh i was just one of the very very many 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 bits of collateral damage my movie was so i can't say that i'm you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm like a, a kind of an irrelevant part of it, really, because I think you have a lot, more, a lot bigger issues to deal with. Oh, we, we, we had an insurrection. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know. We, I, we all. It's batshit crazy. Yes, with surprise and horror. With horror, yes. Uh, well, yeah. imagine if you lived here, and or imagine if you were fairly socially liberal in a very red state. Yeah. Yeah. So we're often no, the can, blueberries. Uh, look, I have, yeah, I spend most of my day talking to people in America, friends and colleagues, and so I know how I know how bad it all is. And you know, it's my second home. I mean, I I've virtually lived in Los Angeles um, over the years, as long for longer stretches of time than I have in Sydney in Australia. Yep. So, so I'm very very aware of the the culture. Um, though I must say that 2016 when when uh i mean we, we we got a sense of it with just going back to gods of egypt again for a moment we've got a sense of this kind of uh growing division um and anger on social media and that's what that's the entire that was driven by the entire thing you know yes um but i but i was really kind of overwhelmingly surprised by how strong those divisions had become and how vehement the anger was um, that that was really surprising at that early point um, uh, you know I'd spent a few years actually in Sydney making the movie so I'd lost a little bit of connection I guess with with those emotions that were that were building in, in the states um, but it was really quite uh, quite an extraordinary time and it's continued I mean it's really continued on that on that trajectory um, yeah, and unfortunately, we, you know, it's like people, you know, I'm not Democrat or Republican. I'm, I'm not, I don't vote there and I'm not, and I'm not, um, I have friends on both sides in, in the film industry. Um, and, you know, the Republicans obviously don't, a lot of them don't want to admit that they're Republicans because the film industry is so strongly Democrat, you know. Um, right. 
but um, f- from my point of view as an Australian living in Australia, um, uh, I, you know, I, I don't side with either side. I, I, all I see is the incredible division that both sides are actually responsible for and continuing to um, expand that rift, you know, and I, and, I, and I feel very, very sad for that because it's, I mean, we hope Biden is going to bring everyone together. That's, I guess, the hope um, rather than continuing to drive that wedge. But, but, I, but I do hope that's what happens. But I, but I know that intrinsically that's not a politician's kind of quest, you know. Politician's quest is to continue to drive the wedge. And they're like that all over the world, you know. Um, Trump did it in a far more kind of in-your-face style. Yeah. Um, but here, here we have, you know, Labour and Liberal, who are the, you know, Democrat and Republican here. The two-party system uh, functions similarly here, and it's the same crap. You know, it doesn't matter who's in, in, in office. They're trying to continue to drive the wedge, continue to distance the other side, and continue to gain their own points in, in that fashion and turn and make every part of life polit- political, you know, that's what, that's their goal, unfortunately. So I'm, I'm down on all the politicians everywhere in the world. Quite frankly. Well, the thing is, is I don't think it can be fixed. Uh, the, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, whatever cliche you want to say, and there's hate on both sides. You're absolutely correct. I'm registered independent, but there's hate on both sides. And what I can't fathom is that, and this is from my liberal friends and I'm of course liberal, but who will refuse and who stop talking to their Republican friends because they voted for Trump. And I, I, my point, and I've gotten several people mad at me who stopped talking to me when I said, you know, there's some people in Europe who had to live with Nazis a couple of years after the war. And if they can do that, I can live with someone who voted for Trump. Mm. Does that make sense to you? I mean, there are some it things. Does, it, it's it not like Nuremberg. Achieve. It's not like Nuremberg yeah. took care of no, everyone who 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 yeah. did war crimes. It, it doesn't achieve anything. And and no, even we all have into, to work together. Even to put it into that context, I mean, yeah, look, Trump was a bad guy and did a lot of bad stuff, and and mostly did. Um, he mostly did stuff that 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 continued to drive people further apart. I think that's the yeah. most unforgivable part of his administration. Um, but there's certainly no comparison to, to no. you know, the, 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 the rhetoric of comparing it to Nazis and fascists and whatever the hell everyone was comparing everyone else, the other side to is just kind of, ins- it's just insane. It's just part of this, this, this social media madness that's gripped everyone, you know, um, it's possessed us social. I think social media is that is the greatest evil, um, you know, uh, the world has has been has been perpetrated upon the world in the last ten years. I think the iPhone and the the putting all that stuff into your palm of your hand and instantly so yeah, well, I mean, we're all doing it. We're on social media now, for God's sake, or we will be. And that's what um, I was about to say. And, yeah. And those things, are, I mean, that part of it is great. You know, that's that's terrific. You know, there's obviously there's a, there's a good side to splitting the atom as well. You yeah. Know? Um, uh, so, so you know, but there's a really bad side to to this stuff as well, and and social media. See, particularly having a, you know, I've got a 12 year old daughter, and and just the fear I have about how that's that technology is going to be used in this next generation and and used against 
against us. I'm really kind of concerned about it, you know, as I know we all are, you know. Because it, it, it's eroded borders, I think, and that can be a positive thing. But I think about the cases now I have a daughter as well. Yeah. And, you know, it used to be, using an extreme example, something you, you could pick up and move and it didn't follow you. But now people tag you on social media and it's almost a fingerprint that follows you everywhere. So, yeah, it's uh, it's I agree. It, it's, a, it's a tool that could be used for seemingly infinite good, but mm, it can also be used to do a lot of you know, it, just, it seems almost inescapable. And and if you don't have it, people think you're odd too, so. The positives yeah, are that, you know, I we do a little part for a friend of ours, Glenn, who has a show in Australia and we are friends and we've been friends for over a year and we've never met in person and we talk all yeah. the time. That's the great part and we're able to do this and we're all together. The bad part is I don't think people are allowed to make mistakes anymore because it will follow you for the rest of your life. Yeah, the misspoken word, cancel, cancel culture. That's the the cancel culture of people saying things. This stuff is horrible. Yeah, it's um, it's there's nothing good that will come from that. It's a witch hunt. It's bullying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, and you know, it's like so many things. You know, the 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 small number of bad people give the whole taint the whole thing. You know, and they taint it for everybody. and and uh, that's the case with you know, yes, there are some bad people, and there are some bad people who don't deserve to be tweeting on, you know, endlessly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you, you, as soon as you adopt that, as soon as you cross that line, you are you are in really really dangerous waters, you know, um, and people just don't are not seeing that, you know, they're not seeing that we are. We are heading very specifically into 1984. I mean, I think we're already there, quite frankly, and um, we we have to do everything we can to fight this stuff. You know, the, those who those who should not be suppressed and frightened into not expressing that opinion. That's that is the stuff of George Orwell. That is mm-hmm. just just completely unacceptable in a democratic. Um, you know, country or, or, or a democratic world, you know, and uh, we just have to do our darndest to try not to let that happen. You know? Yeah. Well, I, we got, I, this was fascinating. We got totally off, off of where I thought we were going on this. So back to your personality, how do you did music? So I was trying to figure out because I was watching your commercials and of course you have such an eye, such a vision, such a voice. And I was trying to figure out how do you get that through the process of making a commercial and did that help you with fighting or getting that voice to the studio system? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of, uh, you know, my, my visual style or whatever, the way I tell stories mm-hmm. visually and structure things and yeah, it's all part of trying to focus in on my, what it is that is me, you know, um, mm-hmm. trying to understand that and, and trying to express that, um, and at the same time, it's also completely kind of, un, uh, you know, unconscious, yes. um, non-conscious, you know, non, I'm not already aware of it. I just do it. I mean, I, I'm always staggered to when it, I don't often go back and look at my old films or anything that I've done before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I occasionally get a reason to do that if there's like a reissue of a film or, you know, director's cut or whatever. Um, and uh, I'm always staggered by how 
little I've evolved, how little I've changed, and how I just keep doing the same crap over and over again, you know? Um, well, there's a uh, really but quick... It, but it, yeah, what's that? There, no, really quick. You, you, you're. I, that's. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but there's an Adidas commercial, and I was watching it, and I was thinking, this is so much Dark City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that one was consciously Dark City because I. That was a, only a couple of years before Dark City. Okay. Yeah. And um and, uh, so yeah, that's shot before we did Dark mm -hmm. City, and I was I had Dark City as a script, and I was trying to get it financed, and so I actually made the commercial look just well very similar to dark <laughs> city um because i i use that as a kind of a, a leverage to show studios and say oh, it's going to look something like okay this, you know? well great because um, i was watching it thinking oh my god it's dark city but I, yeah. yeah that makes sense. but even more so i mean stuff for me that um that i go i'm just i'm just doing it they're obsessions you know i have obsessions and i guess people you know, I mean, you, in films, you're supposed to write characters that change and mm -hmm. and evolve. But the fact is, I don't think people really change that much. You know, I think people show a different face to the world. Um, and you know, if someone, if if you know, they go, oh, he he became an, an asshole when he became successful and famous. But it's like, no, he probably all, all, always was an asshole. You know. <laughs> Um, and he just, allowed, you know, he, he was not scared to show that side of himself when he became successful, you know. Um, uh, so, so my point, I guess, is as a, as an artist, as a filmmaker, I, I haven't really, I get to play on, on different levels with different resources and different budgets and actors and whatever. But I'm always going back to the my personal obsessions, and those don't really change that much, you yeah. know. Um, they're, they're, they're obviously very strongly impacted. People's, people's um, personality and attitudes are very strongly impacted at the very beginning, you know, early on in life. Um, but I think as a filmmaker, I just kind of explore the same obsessions, trying to understand, trying to solve, you know, problems, trying to understand myself. Um, trying to understand the world and you know the more you, you the more you learn the less you know kind of thing that's kind of the the one great thing that I've learned I guess over over time is let you know don't be scared of re-exploring re things don't be worried about telling the same kind of story all the time because eventually you'll find the perfect <laughs> perfect way to, to tell it and you know, and I, and I, you know, as, as, as a filmmaker, you always hide stuff, you know, under dressing, your art department, whatever. And, yeah, yeah. But, but the themes are always the same, you know, they're always, and I've just become more conscious of that over the years, you know. Yeah. I, I, I did want to ask because you wrote Dark City and, and uh, but you've also, you directed The Crow. And I wanted to ask about how do you approach the difference between directing something, J.O.? graphic novels and obviously so as, as you approach directing does adapting somebody else's work do you do you look at how they approached it or do you think about how it has to look on film no you you as finding finding other work that you base your that you direct you know and and i've got to say you're not wishing to take anything away from david scow who wrote you know mm -hmm. did the lion's share of writing on the crow or any of the other writers that i've worked with i mean I write on everything. I, I don't, yeah. sometimes I just don't get credits. You know, there's the WGA gives you a, a you know, you, you have to have written a, 
I think over a, a certain percentage. 40%? 40%, 40%, 40%, 40%, 40%, 40%, 40%, 40%, 40%, 40%, 40%, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, and then it's really, when, it, when you... When you're working with teams of different teams of writers on different, you know, different stages of the development, it's really hard to quantify that. You know, they go through an arbitration, as you know, but mm-hmm. but it's sometimes really hard to quantify that. And everyone's, all the different teams are fighting like tooth and nail to get their, to not get other credits because that distills whatever proceeds they get from the profits of the film, etc. Um, and so that's, you know, you're put into an antagonistic situation, you know, so with Dark City, I, I um, you know, I actually said to the to my two writers, I mean, I should have had probably sole credit for Dark City, but this was in the early days of 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 um, working, and I was just being completely fair. And I went, mm-hmm. well, Lem Dobbs has done this, and David Gore has done that, yep. and so therefore we should just go to the WGA and say we all agree that we should get shared credit, yep. you know. And so they didn't go through arbitration and stuff like that. Um, it was the only occasion where that's ever happened, you know, and and uh, I didn't have the attitude in those days of I must fight tooth and nail to to get credit, you know. I don't, I don't, and I still don't really, I don't care about that stuff um, unless it's unfair and, mm-hmm. and it has been on some projects. Knowing, for example, I mean, I, I put so much writing into that and, even more so, uh, 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 my my co-writer Stuart Hazeldean mm-hmm. on that project should have had credit. You know, I could I could sort of see why I may not have received it, but Stuart should definitely have had credit. And he got he got kind of gazumped by the 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 whole arbitration process because we were writing as a team, me mm-hmm. and Stuart for a period of time. I was writing on my own for a period of time. He was writing on his own for so really. Um, they, it should have all been parceled in together, and 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 you know, I mean, he, it was a page one rewrite on that on that on that project. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that you know I'm always involved with the writing, but at the very at the very um, at the very origin of something that comes to me, it's it's incredibly rare that I find, I go, wow, great, this is perfect. I can go start shooting it tomorrow. You know. At, at my, and that's only maybe happened a couple of times in all the thousands of scripts that I've been offered and read over the years, you know. Yeah. Usually if I end up with a script that I go, you know what, there's some really interesting idea in here, um, we can make something of that. And then we usually develop it with either I write or someone else writes or, or the mm-hmm. original writers come in and keep writing or whatever, you know. And that goes on for a period of time until we get to the final script. But that that core idea that core thing and the core dynamic between the characters is what gets me involved um and that always you know and how do i pick that will i pick that from themes and ideas that i'm obsessed with so they all have to they all fit into my wheelhouse conceptually you know so knowing is a great example of that you know the crow is also a great example of that um i'm i'm obsessed with you know life after death and and other realities and what happens when we die and etc cetera, etc cetera. and so all all these things you know there's without exception um uh and um and you know so something like knowing came along that that sort of asked something really pertinent questions intriguing mm-hmm. questions to me and um and so that seemed to fit my and I, again, I, I mean, I, it's it's organic. It's not. I don't 
intellectualize this stuff um, because sometimes you're, you're still trying to sort out exactly what the things are. But I just it hits me on a gut level, and I go, "Well, this is a story that I can get passionate about telling," because that's the most important thing I think to find that. If you don't have a passion to tell a story, it's really hard to sustain um, uh, an entire movie-making experience. It's tough. You know, it's never, it never gets easy as we've as we've um, as we've established. And so you have to have that the sustenance of that incredible burning desire to tell, get the story told. You know, and um, and so that's got to be part of your DNA to to be able to. To, to do that you know i love knowing I, I love the ending of knowing um and i i but i'm curious both that and dark city especially dark city how did you get away with both those endings for a studio well 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 actually the ending of knowing is what made me that was in the in the script that came to me mm-hmm. um and that was what got me to make the movie i loved um, it i saw it in the theater and, and i just adored it yeah. yeah, and um, when they, in the script that I read, the spec script that I read, um, it came to me, Vice Studio, Vice Summit, I think from mm-hmm. memory, and, um, and, uh, and, I, and I was reading a script and going, yeah, this is, it's interesting, but there's a lot of issues and they need to be sorted out, et cetera. And then this whole concept of the world ending came up and I'm like, this is just not going to happen. You know, they're going to cop out. The yep. script is just not at the level conceptually where I where I as a as a reader I'm going mm-hmm. this is they're gonna all everyone's gonna die you know <laughs> and um when it actually did happen I'm like okay I'm sold and so I went to the studio and I said I will make this film only if this ending never changes only if we can actually do exactly this in the finished film and they said okay we agree to that I think it was even in it was even in contract you know, form. <laughs> um, I insisted on putting it in 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 a clause in the form because I knew I, I knew that at, at some point somewhere along the line, a test screening or whatever, someone would go, "No, we don't like it. It makes us feel bad. So therefore, you must change the ending." Um, and uh, sure enough, that did happen in some some test screenings, but I uh, I knew that it would not be touched. You know, so those test screenings man you drag you know a bunch of people at the mall into a movie in the middle of the day or night or something who are there to see i never understand the the logic i get the logic of sitting there with an audience maybe and getting the feel as the movie plays as a filmmaker going well maybe this this joke doesn't land or the scare doesn't land but just filling out the cards and doing tests things later and everybody dissecting it and they're all think they're kubrick (laughs) right It makes no Particularly sense. Particularly in LA, yeah, they're, yeah, they're it, all the same. You know, they're, they're they're all kids who are trying to impress the studio people, yeah. So they can get a movie, they get get to direct a movie. So they're trying to pick hole, any holes they can in it. You know, um, so yeah, it's a very it's a it's, it's a crazy scenario. It's one of the things that's destroying. Well, you know, it's killing films. I think one of those things, because as a filmmaker, I mean, of course, you want to know how whether something plays, but we have. We have friends and colleagues that we can test the test the film with and mm-hmm. see if something works. Who will give us an, on, a much more honest opinion rather yeah. than trying to win any points, you know? Um, right. So it's um yeah it's a pretty nonsensical process I've got to say. That's okay. So Rob Zombie has said before that one of the people he's never gotten to work with and who he's never been able to get is Richard O'Brien. Right. So 
was it tough to get Richard O'Brien into Dark City? He's fabulous. He's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I don't think it was that particularly hard. I mean, it was. Uh, I love Richard. He's a great guy. Um, yeah. He's a very complex character. Okay. Um, and he's and he's been he's been kind of brutalized by the system as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a lot to, a lot to share. Well, at that stage, I hadn't been quite as brutalized as he'd been. But the whole financial aspects of Rocky Horror and how he was kind of you know cut out of that whole loop when the film became you know and he he invented Rocky Horror right it's his thing you know? yes yes he actually did um he was writing a musical version of Dark City while we were shooting he'd be writing songs off off the, off to the side and, <laughs> I would love to see a musical uh, version of Dark City I'd love City. to see that I'd love <laughs> to see like you, you know every year that goes by I go I must call Richard and we, we, we must create the stage show version um uh, but um, and he's the only I know who can make who made a rhyme, and it's, I'm killing myself because I don't remember what the rhyme was. That's it okay. Was a particularly clever one. He made a rhyme with necrophilia. <laughs> he managed to find a word that rhymed with necrophilia, and it's well, in the context of a song, you know. So, so I give him huge points for being able to rhyme that with that word. Um, but um, but no, he was um, you know he 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 loved the idea of it. I remember going to him, and you know the, it was it was. One of the very few occasions where I wrote the part for Richard. Um, okay. Yeah. As I was writing the character, I started writing the character, the, the, the film. I was in London, or so, and and Richard was actually on a. Um, he used to he had this kid show uh, that he was doing, um, and I remember sitting in a hotel room in in uh, in London. I think I was working on some commercial music video or something, and. Uh, he he came on the TV and I went oh Rich Richard O'Brien and he, and he plays a character in like a more nefarious character mm-hmm. um, than he did in Rocky Horror which is the only other thing I'd ever seen him in yeah and uh, he was really great in this in this role for this kid show you know and uh, so I started I I started thinking of his voice every time Mr Hand spoke I was imagining yeah. Richard saying the lines and with that incredible alien kind of smooth voice that he has you know and uh and so I would have been well stumped if he said no you know but he was I think I probably told him the story that I wrote it for him and maybe that helped I don't know maybe that helped helped get him but um but yeah he um no he he came on board pretty pretty quickly and um we um and he's from New Zealand of course so he Mm -hmm. you know he he knows and likes this part of the world so I said we're going to go to go to Australia and he was fine with that and and um and then when we were casting everything everything else um all the other all the other roles of the strangers in Dark City there were so many times where I would use Richard as a I was trying to explain how I wanted them to be yeah and I I just found it easier to go just just be like him you know (laughs) um so like um Ian Richardson who's a very he, uh, you know, sadly, he's passed away. A very accomplished actor who played yeah. the Uber stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like, you know, how do you want me to do it, dear boy? You know, it's like we're all these questions about, <laughs> and I'm go, well, you know, yeah. Then he just tell me, and I go, well, kind of like Richard, you know. And he was like, I'm cool, I'm cool with that. I'll do it that way, you know. So everyone was channeling Richard O'Brien on the on the set at some point, you know. That's hilarious. Well, I, I have to ask a question about Strange Nostalgia because I watched it um, and, and 
I'll be honest, it pulled me in almost immediately. And, and I kept going, can this keep going? Uh, and you made this completely during the pandemic. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, was it ahead. something you had written before or was it, was it a product uh, of the pandemic itself? No, it was, um, I've been making these short films and, and I do them. Uh, there's another one on Mystery Clock called mm -hmm. um, uh, Phobos. Phobos. And I, I do the experiments and, you know, they're short films, but I have none of the concerns of narrative storytelling. I mean, who cares? You know, I, really, I think it's hilarious how you put it on YouTube and whatever you put on YouTube, someone gives it a thumbs down. Like, yeah, we didn't like that. You know, I'm like, it's like, it's free. You don't have to watch it. Okay. You can just click that button and go somewhere else. Why spend the energy to just give something a thumbs down? It seems you're talking to me. podcasters. You yeah. know, I was gonna say, <laughs> you're talking to middle-aged fat white men who are talking about media. We yeah. know a little bit about being hated or thumbs down. Yeah, and I was going to say, it's we, hilarious to me. We, you know? free. We've yeah. done this show for a while now. And I think the first time we got a thumbs down was one of the episodes that I looked most forward to doing. We did a retrospective about Vincent Price who, as a kid, he was my favorite everything. Oh, and it was the yeah, first wonderful. thing. The yeah. first review we got was, this is terrible. What, yeah. What yeah, well, it was <laughs> earlier on. I mean, you're going to be like a episode, I think, 171. And it was back in the 20s. And it was, why are you yeah. shitting on this? Like, yeah, make fun <laughs> of And then we told episode. James he sucked for the next six yeah, months. It's, it was yeah, it's, yeah. I, I just love the fact that energy is expended on something that's completely pointless. You know, I think I always find that a hilarious yeah. kind of approach, Yeah, we didn't you know? change anything after um, somebody gave us a thumbs down. We didn't go, oh, well, let's break this no, down and see what no, we No, I just do. do, I do, on YouTube, I just do more of it. I just try and get more thumbs. <laughs> With the short films, it's, um, it's, because uh, the fact is for your, um, for the AI or whatever the hell, mm -hmm. the algorithm that works out right. our lives, rules our lives on YouTube, it doesn't care whether it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down as long as it's a it's a response, you know. So that means nothing to anybody, you know, even even less nothing, you know. Yep. Um so so um so with the short films, I will just do stuff just because I'm I'm trying something. I'm ex mm -hmm. it's ex they're experimental. Um, you know, uh Strange Nostalgia has been incredibly successful in the experimental uh, uh um short film festival festivals around the world you know so it's some it's the most awarded film i've ever made by far you know and i'm like this is just insane this is something that i basically i shot some footage of this beautiful girl um not knowing really what it was going to be used for and um that was the one the, the only component that was done before the pandemic before mm -hmm. the lockdown and i i just kind of parked it and then i i was looking for things to do when we just shot this film called Mask of the Evil Apparition, which is mm -hmm. a more legitimate narrative film. And then they, then we got locked down. This was early last year. We got locked down and everyone that I was working with, we all had to go home. You know, So I was sitting there in my brand new studio on my own without any of my resources going, well, what am I going to do? So I, I ed start editing Mask of the Evil Apparition. That's, I get it done. It's finished, you know, the, fin the edit at least, you know. And then I'm going, well, I'm, what do I do for the next, you know, who, who knows how long this is going to go on for? So I found this footage. I started putting it together. I found some other bits and pieces that I'd shot on beaches and stuff over the years and, and just all sorts of these weird little, little elements. And I started 
sticking this thing together in a completely abstract kind of free association way and started going, can I construct some sort of a, some kind of a, uh, not so much a narrative, but a emotive um, a spine feel. to yeah. this. Yeah, mm -hmm. something that holds you. It, can I sustain viewership or an audience mm -hmm. with something that actually has no narrative and is so limited in its resources? So then I, then I, wrote, a, I wrote the script based on something I constructed visually. I started seeing ideas and themes in there and the whole thing about the ocean, the obsession with the ocean. I don't know where the hell that, that came from. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I contacted an actor, an actress that I'd worked with on some films, uh, Maya, who she was locked down at home and mm -hmm. she happened to have, her partner happens to have a little sounds recording studio because he's a musician mm -hmm. um, in their house. So I said, can you record a, can you record some voice, some narrative voice for me? And she said, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'd be directing her over the phone and she's doing it and she would send me files of her, of her mm -hmm. voice work and I'd redo them and I'd turn her mic it more closely next time and be more, more intimate with it. And, and the, my composer is, is someone who I've not yet met, actually still to this day, who contacted me and he's a, he's a very established composer here in Australia. Um, mm -hmm. He contacted me and said, anything you want me to do? And I said, well, I've got this, you know, and he ended up doing the Mask of the Evil Apparition as well. And I've not not ever not ever met him. We've we've only talked. He's in another state, and he's not been able to come to our state. Um, and uh, so the whole thing was done via via remote collaboration, and it was it was great fun. It was great fun to do. It certainly, stopped, you know, helped me not go insane. Being, you know, not being able to to collaborate because it, you you know we all realised at that point in time how much you know physical collaboration like being in someone's yeah. presence is so important to our to our work you know um being a you know taking it for granted i guess over the years as we all have that when you don't have it it's uh it's just such a lonely experience you know even writing you know when i the loneliest part of the filmmaking process you're sitting in a room writing but i'm still getting out and meeting people and physically interacting and i'm and uh, not having that seemed really kind of strange. You know? So that reminds me of back to Phobos. I, I was watching it and it's, and you were talking about music and if clearly you've met known so many great musicians, you've directed their videos, but there was a part of it that I was thinking when I was listening to the synth score, that it was very Carpenter esque. Was that intentional? Yeah. Did you request that track that? is no, no, it was not intentional, but that track is very much. I, I, I do agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I loved it. And I, and I hit that note and I was like, Oh man, did John write yeah. that? Who's also yeah. from Kentucky, but I drive it much louder. I go much louder. I'm like Carpenter on 11 you know i'd always drive yeah i loved it they always tell me that my music is too loud because i love music and, mm -hmm. and um that's the one that i always get from studios with music because i love playing it loud i'm the sort of guy who will go into when um they're recording the with an you know when they're mm -hmm. recording with an orchestra yeah um i i will go in and sit in in amongst the orchestra because i love the feeling of being surrounded by this incredible score i did that on uh, Gods of Egypt, Marco Beltrami, who's my frequent composer, collaborator, he's done, I think he's done three movies for me now, yeah. um, uh, recorded with a hundred piece orchestra. And it was just, just great being in there, hearing it. So I want to re I'm trying to reproduce that in the, in the <laughs> theater at the end. And it's sometimes hard to, hard to do that. But I, 
you know, I think music is a really, and I, I think that's also come from Kubrick as well. Yep. Kubrick at a very early point taught me how incredible, how music can just drive the stories so well, you know, through 2001, but also like, you know, or most of his movies, um, uh, um, Clockwork Orange was, was one where he really, the music just became like its own character. And well, um, Full Metal Jacket as well with the pop music. Yeah, that I mean, that's his, I mean, he, that was his approach with everything, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I've, I always have that in my mind, but more so than John Carpenter. But I, but I was aware of that, the similarities of that track, you know, so. No, I, I just enjoyed it. Go ahead, James. Well, I, I know we, uh, we uh, don't have too much time left, but I did want to ask a question because I think um, uh, Dark City has, has definitely artwork in it and things like that. But with Phobos, it also has the, you, you have some scenes of some classic Greek art, uh, some classic, uh, well, representations of Greek mythology and the different artwork that pops up throughout that. Uh, how did you go about deciding what was going to make it? Or did you go in saying, I want this piece, I want this piece? Because you have that classic sense of almost horror art, the, the classical pieces that yeah. are in there. Well, Phobos is a, um, Phobos means fear in Greek. Mm -hmm. And it's also one of the Martian moons, uh, um, fear and dread, the two Martian moons, um, Demos and Phobos. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um uh, you know, so that that piece was about fear. You know, it was about you know my one. I didn't have a script for that. I just went out for a few hours with uh, with the one actor who's in there, and I had mm -hmm. one other helper to help me carry gear, and that was it. That was the entire crew, cast and crew for the film, and we went out and shot it in a few hours. And um, and I I said to Bonnie, who's the who's the actor, I said, look, I don't know what we're going to do, but I know it's going to be about fear. It says we'll make it up as we go along. She was like, yeah, I'm cool with that. So, so we went out and we just, I just kept inventing scenarios for, you know, there's a girl who loses her car in a car park, but there's something more going on than someone's following her. And, and so just very abstract concepts, of course. Um, and, and so those images that we use are, are uh, you know, just again, trying to find images that, and I guess I'm, being a fan of the dark side of art and I'm aware of a lot of great paintings and images from the past that would suggest fear, you know, and uh, express fear. And uh, so that's really the, the parameters of the stuff that I put in there. I've also been, I've collected a lot of those images too, just off the, off the internet for, um, for um, seminars and things that I've done that I do here in Australia. I do a lot of workshops and seminars and, I usually have something because I feel like people would rather watch something interesting behind me and therefore not look at me so much, you know. Um, so I always project like images that always takes people's attention away from my my visage, and uh, <laughs> um, and that way I can I can drink water and choke and stuff and do all this stuff that I do when I'm doing a live presentation. They don't notice that stuff so much, you know. Um, so that was really, that, that were the parameters of the images that I chose. And, you know, I think there's, there's also like, you know, historical images like World Trade Center and mm -hmm. stuff like that, you know, that are just like instant. Wow. You know, you, you flash up some frames of that and it, you instantly put people into a, your audience into an uncomfortable space, you know? Yeah. And um, so that's kind of, that was the theory anyway. You know? 
Well, I, we promised you an hour and I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up with really cliched question. And it's, <laughs> at least I told you it was going to be. Cliche. No, go. Yeah, go for it. I don't well, hear what a cliche question Well, is. actually, I didn't write it down. It came to me while we were going and I, you know, I, I'm always curious about great filmmakers like yourself and not necessarily the project that got away, but the project that you'd still want to do. And what I'm curious is, is there, especially since you're such a fan of fantasy and science fiction like we are, is there that one book out there that hasn't been adapted that you'd love to do or that one story? Preferably, oh, there's, pre- there's many, many, many stories. Um, I'm a science fiction geek from mm-hmm. way back and. I used to read a lot of science fiction as a kid and imagine yeah. the movie, right? So there's so many movies, so many of those unmade movies in my brain, you know. And uh, that's what I loved. I loved about the science fiction genre uh, literature is that as a filmmaker, I could actually do that. I could create these films in my my mind, you know. Um, there's so many of them. I mean, it's like there's so few that have been touched. Stars, my destination is one now for best a novel that that I've tried to get made over the years several times and it's never come come together um, but there's also for me the the big one of the big major disappointments of my career has been I was I was very close to fin- making a movie about par- based on Paradise Lost Milton's mm-hmm. Paradise Lost which is another great piece that I've always been very very fond of um, and the movie was going to be phenomenal. It was going to be extraordinary. It was like, I would, I remember going into the studio where I was working into my office and sitting down with all the illustrations around me and going, I can't believe they're letting me make this movie, you know, and sure enough, that came true. They didn't, they didn't let me make the movie. We got very close, but we were, we were, we were shut down because we, they just, they said it was budgetary, but I'm, but I still to this day believe they just got scared of the, the, the concept, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's so there's so many of them, you know, um, and some of them I'm at the moment I'm kind of going trying to you know every few years I I get to explore some some of those things and I'm going back to some of them at the moment which I would rather not mention. But, no, it's um, funny that you brought up Stars of Destination because yeah. back to Carpenter in a, a interview he said that's the one that he would still love to do. Really? Oh, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. About and that interview him. led me to discover. Alfred Beaster and read the like the rest of yeah. his books and yeah. the Demolished uh, Man is also very good. Demolished too. Man is a great yeah. book. Uh, yeah. uh, what's the one three thousand? I can't remember. Yeah, they. Uh, so I I and then I bought it for the other two boneheads. I bought them their own copies and I said, if we ever get a chance, to, this is the book we should do. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, we could talk yeah. about that for. An I hour. mean, there's so there's book. The, 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 there's a lot of writers from that era. that sort of this kind of considered the golden age of science mm-hmm. fiction, and they're all the stuff. That's all the stuff that I grew up on. And like, you know, rather than specific novels, because there's so many of them, but there are writers like Arthur Clarke, mm-hmm. Ray Bradbury, um, uh, Robert Silverberg. Um, uh, you know, there's so many of them. Um, Asimov, of course. Yeah. Um, that they have numerous um, great, just so much, there's such a wealth of stuff there. And and every t- occasionally here, I mean, I know they did like Childhood's End recently on for TV and mm-hmm. um, just not, just, it's, it's, I don't know how you mess that stuff up. And I don't like, I don't like to say anything bad about any fellow filmmaker or any, any others, other people's work, 
because I know how hard it is to make films of, of any quality, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I get I get really disheartened by what I'm seeing from a lot of the, these when they when someone does stumble upon the opportunity to make one of these great things I hold in very high regard and they fuck it up I'm like really really I'm kind of pissed off you know so well can you say which one lately maybe in the last few years that she's like oh that is a fuck up uh no because no, that yeah, okay. gets into that that yeah I'd rather just I understand. Say, um, but there's one about to come out that I can say I'm really dreading um <laughs> Uh, which uh, I, does it again, come I won't out, name names. Does it come out this fall and that filmmakers arguing with the WB about streaming uh, and, and cinema? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> well, give me credit for at least guessing fairly correctly. <laughs> just give it just a dance. Well, you know, Alex, I, I, I'm with James. I'm glad that we got that. Um, it's not where I intended to go, but it's fantastic. And I love the aside we did with the 20 minutes and, and with gods of Egypt. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for sharing your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Lovely talking to, to both of you. It's great right. fun. Yeah. All Thanks. right. Well, this has been bonehead weekly. Grrrr. <laughs>